0: We begin with breaking news and a dramatic escalation in fighting in Ethiopia. Ethiopia has launched a military offensive after rebel forces attacked an army base, igniting fears of a civil now, war. Amnesty International is calling it a horrific tragedy. Scores and possibly hundreds of civilians have been stabbed and hacked to death in the northern Ethiopian region of Tigray. And the number of people fleeing the violence into Sudan,
1: it's going up. Uh, at least 20,000 now. <laughs>
0: These are the latest headlines out of Ethiopia this month. They're alarming, even if you know nothing about Ethiopia. But they're especially surprising when you remember that this was where things stood just a year ago.
1: The Norwegian Nobel Committee has awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for 2019 to Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. The Nobel Committee listed a series of accomplishments for Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, all achieved in his first 100 days in office.
0: Abiy Ahmed's first year as Prime Minister was full of promise and excitement for a better Ethiopia. But that hope turned to horror for many this year, as headlines of ethnic violence and now war superseded those of peacemaking. The conflict in northern Ethiopia right now has already lasted two weeks and it threatens to destabilize the entire Horn of Africa. How did Abiy Ahmed go from winning the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize to having a potential civil war on his hands in the span of just one year? I'm Malika Pilal, and this is The Take. To break down this story, we turn to Zakarias Zelalem, a freelance journalist who spent a lot of his childhood in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa.
1: For those of my generation who saw breathtaking change, a whirlwind of reform within the first few months of Abiy Ahmed's leadership in 2018, to be hearing of war and the mass displacement of uh, refugees, well, it's, uh, it leaves us feeling somewhat despondent, to say the least.
0: Zacharias moved to Canada a few months ago, but he's continued to report from abroad.
1: In recent days, my primary focus has been the war in Ethiopia's Tigray region.
0: Ethiopia is a big country. It's the second most populated one in Africa. There are more than 80 different ethnic groups, and the Tigrayans, who make up about 6% of the population, have had a disproportionate impact on the country's history. They ruled it — with a heavy hand — for about 30 years, until Prime Minister Abiy took office in April 2018. Now, the main Tigrayan party only has control over Ethiopia's northernmost province, Tigray region.
1: The breakout of military hostilities in Ethiopia that happened in early November was the result of a year or two years' worth of worsening tensions between Ethiopia's federal government and the regional government in Tigray, led by the TPLF party. The two never saw eye to eye. However, over the course of this past year, the primary sticking point between the two would be the Tigray regional government's refusal to postpone elections. The Ethiopian government had announced that elections scheduled for August of this year would be postponed because of the COVID-19 uh, outbreak. And the regional government uh, insisted that there was no such risk that merited the postponing of the elections. And it went ahead and held elections that were in defiance of the federal government and resulted in the extension of the TPLF's mandate.
0: So let me get this straight, because this is really striking. The government postpones the elections thanks to the pandemic. Uh-huh. But then a party in one region of Ethiopia decides we still want those elections. So we're not going to listen to the postponement and we're going to go ahead and have elections in our region.
1: Yeah, that's correct. What the Tigrayan regional government would be correct in stating here is the fact that despite this call not to hold elections, the federal government was able to go ahead with several campaigns, including a world-breaking tree planting campaign where thousands of people converged to plant trees, which would also be in violation of Ministry of Health regulations. So when you put it that way, the Tigrayan government might have a point, but obviously this would be left up to legal experts to determine if this would be a constitutional violation or not.
0: After that regional election in September things moved fast. The Tigray government, led by the TPLF party and Abiy's administration and Addis Ababa, each declared the other illegitimate and unconstitutional. The federal government cut ties with the region and suspended aid. And then, in the early hours of November 4th, the TPLF attacked a national military base in the Tigray region. Just hours later, Prime Minister Abiy sent in troops. Such a prisoners' acts... Left us no option but to mobilize our law enforcement and defense machinery in an operation intended to end the prevailing lawlessness in the region. The two governments were at war. So you told me a little bit about the tensions between. Tigray regional government, and the Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed. But talk to me about how that started, because the TPLF began as a militia, right?
1: Well, yes, the TPLF was a militia. Its militia overthrew the communist regime in Ethiopia in 1991, and then that militia formed the government. So the TPLF used to be at the helm of Ethiopia's federal government for the past 27 years, from 1991 to 2018, during those 27 years, its rule was characterized as being an iron-fisted rule, a general dictatorship.
0: Do you remember personally what that was like? You grew up in Addis Ababa, the capital.
1: Yeah, I do remember it. Most Ethiopians will recall what life was like under the TPLF-led Ethiopian government. It was a time where speaking out critically of the government in any shape, way or form, would uh, result in severe consequences. Most outspoken critics ended up exiled or would spend years behind bars, often for something as little as uh, expressing dissent on social media. When I was in the country, we were recommended to focus on football, on Bollywood, on anything that wasn't politics, anything that wouldn't provoke the ire of the ruling leadership, which, as I said, had a very thin razor tolerance for any sort of dissent. So it was a popular uprising in 2018 that finally saw the replacement of the TPLF administration with the one that's currently in power, uh, run by Abiy Ahmed. All of a sudden, tens of thousands of unjustly incarcerated are just let out of prison, exiled politicians allowed back in the country, formerly outlawed political entities, uh, given a new lease on life allowed to operate in the country. It was unprecedented never before seen in Ethiopian history. And some of his gestures, including the renewal of ties with neighboring Eritrea, are what won him the Nobel Peace Prize.
0: Abiy's first year in office was celebrated by many Ethiopians. And the Nobel Prize shows he was celebrated globally too. But there was one group that wasn't so pleased.
1: So Abiy Ahmed, he promised change, he promised reform, and he ordered the arrests and dismissals of many TPLF members. So the TPLF was pushed out of the Ethiopian capital to their region. So for the past two years, the TPLF had been governing Tigray. And with Abiy Ahmed in Addis Ababa, we saw something of uh, almost uh, the breakout of Cold War-esque tensions between the two. And with the lack of restraint, with officials from both governments being very open with their polarizing rhetoric, tensions worsened over time. And eventually the fallout over the postponing of elections took a drastic turn. And we see the breakout of military hostilities in November.
0: When you think about a federal army deploying to a northern state, it sounds like one has a clear advantage, like a David and Goliath situation. But the situation in Ethiopia isn't that clear-cut. Because the Tigray region is no meek state. And members of the federal army still have allegiances to the TPLF.
1: When it was at the helm of the government, it was also at the helm of the security apparatus. Members of the TPLF had a virtual monopoly over the Ethiopian intelligence services, the police and the military. So it was able to consolidate its own regional forces. And until this day, it still wields considerable influence over the federal army. So even the Federal Army, which is supposed to be under Abiy Ahmed's command, is having its own issues with the fact that contingents of the military have actually defected and are fighting on the side of the Tigrayan regional government. Uh, It's the result of its 30-year shackle hold on the security apparatus, and that's why this war was never going to be a simple matter. Most observers are fearing a lengthy, protracted stalemate of sorts.
0: The escalating crisis in Tigray is even more concerning in the context of violence and dissatisfaction in other parts of Ethiopia, too. In the West, members of the Oromo ethnic group, the largest in the country, and the one Abiy himself is a part of, continue to complain of marginalization by the government. There's also been an increase in what seem to be ethnically motivated attacks, mainly against the Amhara ethnic group, which is Ethiopia's second-largest. All of the fighting has forced hundreds of thousands of people from their homes. Ethiopia is home to one of the highest populations of internally displaced people in the world. I asked Zakarias why these attacks seem to have grown worse and more frequent since 2018.
1: The primary uh, factor for uh, the breakdown of security and stability in parts of the country is the failure of security institutions and the police in much of these areas where Mahara civilians were reported to have been attacked and killed and massacred, regional security forces who were very lackadaisical in their approach. A month ago, when over a hundred Amhara were massacred in Ethiopia's Ben Shangul Gumuz region, security forces who were based within minutes of the carnage took three days to react in some cases. In July, when something like sixty or so were killed in One of the worst bouts of violence and communal violence in parts of Oromia. Similarly, police and members of the federal army took hours or days to respond. So that's one of the primary contributing factors.
0: And why do you think that is? That there are reports that the army, which was nearby, didn't respond quickly when there were these attacks happening?
1: There are accusations of complicity amongst the members of the security forces or regional governments in some of the areas where civilians are being attacked because it's inexplicable that, for instance, in the town of Dera, which was set alight with something like 50 or 60 homes set ablaze and people killed in Mm -hmm. June, uh, in the same town there were 150 armed police officers who remained idle at their base in a stadium. And the uh, reasoning they gave was that no one had given them the order to intervene. Whether it's the government's inability to properly command its own forces, or whether it's benefiting from the chaos in one way or another, they might be speculating. But what it has done is worsened ties, worsened tensions between different communities, different ethnic groups. There is the prevailing narrative, sadly, among some people that members of entire ethnic groups, like the Oromo people as a whole, are responsible for certain crimes, certain massacres. The Amhara people, the this, the that, certain communities are turning against each other because of the the very polarizing rhetoric, as well as the lack of clarity and the lack of transparency. And it's exacerbated the situation.
0: There are some people who say that the Abiy government alone isn't to blame for the violence that we've seen across Ethiopia this year. They say that the constitution from 1995 and the federal system that it created is at the heart of this. So, can you talk to me about that view and the constitution and why critics say that it exacerbates these tensions? I'm
1: assuming that whoever made that claim is referring to the fact that the constitution guarantees self-autonomy rights to certain communities and have been abused by some of the regional governments uh, used to turn communities against each other. However, the constitution was a result of decades of struggle against marginalization and against a system that propped up certain cultures from the North of the country and enacted erasure against the masses in the South and in the West of the country. So I think the constitution was a necessary concession that uh, helped calming the decades old tensions and it was a must. To say that it's what's causing the breakouts of violence in this day and age, that's a bit of a far-fetched view because The uh, spate of violence that we've noticed uh, this year and in 2019, it's a relatively new phenomenon, whereas this constitution was enacted two decades ago. So it's not something that we could uh, slam the constitution for.
0: So what happened? Because when Abe took office, there were literal celebrations in the streets. You had people coming back. You had political prisoners being freed. You had joyous headlines extolling the future of Ethiopia. What went wrong?
1: Yes, correct. I was among those who was celebrating. I mean, it was perhaps in 2019 when um, discussions between the Oromo Liberation Front, which is one of the formerly outlawed political organizations, it took a turn for the worse. And then uh, a faction of that political organization decided to resume the armed struggle. That was the uh, first sign of things taking a direction for the worse.
0: As he says, the Oromo Liberation Front is a political group that was exiled by the TPLF government and returned to the country when Abiy took office. But the OLF's armed wing has been accused of attacking civilians, mainly in western Ethiopia, as part of an ethnic conflict. And after less than a year in office, Abiy felt compelled to take action against the fighters.
1: In early 2019, war against Oromo Liberation Army rebels was declared and the government has, for the past year and a half, been waging a counterinsurgency operation in the west of the country. So that counterinsurgency operation was the first hint that when it comes to military entities, the Prime Minister would not maintain that famous reconciliatory tone that had won over so many Ethiopians and even the world. It was a sign of things to come because as the war in, in the West rolled on, reports of extrajudicial killings, human rights abuses, incarceration of suspected uh, rebel supporters uh, started to emerge.
0: Zakaria says that over the course of 2019, the Abbey administration started to transform. He says the heavy-handed approach it targeted at the Oromo Liberation Army in the West was soon used against civilians as well. Many rights groups have documented a rise in censorship of journalists, arrests of opposition figures, and violence against protesters over the past year.
1: Over time, that hardline approach became the government's main go-to stance when it came to other political entities. So mass arrests, the shooting of protesters, these became the norm once again by late 2019, early 2020.
0: Zakaria says that all of a sudden, Abiy's government started to resemble the authoritarian one it had replaced.
1: Prior to this war, the optimism that had won over the country, the uh, sentiments of Abiy mania, that's what they were termed two years ago. Well, by that time, they had all but disappeared. And Ethiopia was pretty much a carbon copy of Ethiopia of the pre-2018 era. And then the breakout of war, although obviously it's shocking to anyone to hear the breakout of war between two heavily armed entities, it wasn't as surprising because Ethiopians in the country are now more than familiar with the uncompromising nature of this current government.
0: There is a fear that war in Ethiopia could lead to instability more widely in the region especially in Sudan, where a lot of Ethiopians are now seeking refuge. What regional impact do you think that this instability could have?
1: The main fear right now is that neighboring Eritrea, which fought a a horrific border war with Ethiopia between 1998 and 2000, that left 70,000 dead. The fear is that Eritrea will intervene in this conflict on behalf of the Ethiopian prime minister and fight against the TPLF. The Eritrean government has very warm ties with the Ethiopian government ever since their peace deal in 2018. And it has an age-old loathing of the TPLF in Tigray, dating back to to 1998 when the TPLF-led Ethiopian government fought a war with Eritrea. So there are already reports of Eritrean soldiers getting involved in some of the fighting and escalating this into uh, a war across borders.
0: Ethiopia and Eritrea have both denied those reports. But on Saturday, Tigrayan forces launched rockets into Eritrea's capital, Asmara, intensifying fears that this could soon become an international war. There are already international consequences on Ethiopia's border with Sudan. Al Jazeera's correspondent, Hiba Morgan, drove there just days after the fighting in Tigray began to report on the growing refugee crisis. We've seen refugees still continuing to flow into Sudan, uh, coming in by the hundreds. They They're searched for weapons because Sudanese authorities say some of those who fled from uh, Ethiopia include combatants who participated in the conflict and decided to give up uh, and run for safety. Sudan says that it's expecting a total of up to 200,000 refugees in the coming week, and it's calling
1: out for the international aid organizations to help respond to what is turning out to be a refugee crisis.
0: But Sudan isn't the only bystander that could be affected by a war in Ethiopia.
1: There's implications elsewhere in the region. When war in Tigray was declared, the Ethiopian army mobilized forces that it had deployed across the region, including in neighboring Somalia, where its soldiers are mandated to operate as peacekeepers. So what impact that might have in Somalia, a country that's ravaged by primarily al-Shabaab, That's something that will be determined perhaps in the days and weeks to come. I think the worst-case scenario will be an escalating of the military activities of neighboring countries such as Eritrea. It will lead to an increase of refugees on both sides of the border, something that the very stretched refugee camps in countries like Sudan will be having trouble dealing with in the coming weeks.
0: So... You are a journalist and you've been covering this as a journalist, but you're also Ethiopian. So what has this meant for you as someone who's lived there and is from there?
1: I mean, I've been left very depressed by it, honestly, because I'm old enough to remember the Ethiopian-Eritrean war. My mother's relatives, she's Eritrean. I remember not being able to find them. They were deported during the war and we've never seen them since. Communities were torn apart. Families were separated for decades And obviously the war left 70,000 people dead, destroyed the infrastructure, and has left a lingering impact on both countries that's felt until this day. And that was 20 years ago. The people are weary of war. I am disappointed because I am certain that this was a conflict that could have been resolved through talks, through dialogue, through the use of the reconciliatory tone that the Prime Minister had used to win over the general public in 2018, I do not believe that all avenues for resolving this peacefully were exhausted. I'm sad because the decisions made by public officials on both sides will have a very heavy price that will be paid by the civilians, the masses in the area who had nothing to do with the fallout between the two entities. And, you know, this is a year after the Prime Minister just won the Nobel Peace Prize. Two years after most of us thought that, you know, after three decades, then the generation following us might be able to inherit a peaceful, stable country. Change was on the horizon. That's what most of us wholeheartedly believed. And just for all-out war to break out two years later, it's disappointing to say the least.
0: Thank you so much for reliving some of it and breaking it down for us. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: And that's the take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilvey, Bodina Kispe, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, Negin Oliay, Oniwo Hacha, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilai. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer, and Graylin Brushier is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Daniello Hawaleshka.
1: We'll be back.